Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News travel editor, Peter Greenberg. Hi there, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, a combination of some cutting-edge and surprising travel statistics. Gary Leff from ViewFromTheWing.com on the battles at airport lounges, and the latest on what to eat, what not to eat, and where not to eat it when you're traveling from Larry Olmsted. First up, if you want both a sobering and uplifting report on the current state of travel, not to mention what's around the bend, look no further than Julia Simpson, President and CEO of the World Travel and Tourism Council. She'll give me an after-action COVID report, and then, armed with the latest figures from Oxford Economics, she'll forecast the next 10 years 
in travel. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Julia Simpson, welcome back. Oh, thank you for having me again, Peter. Always a pleasure. Now, the last time we talked was in London, actually, and we were talking about Will travel recover, but most importantly, how will it travel, Will it recover, and in which ways will it recover? Then, of course, we saw the summer of 2022 being chaos incarnate uh, as travel came back with an explosive vengeance. Airplanes were full. Airports were crazy. Infrastructure was strained. Um, and not everybody was prepared for it. We saw the unthinkable. You know, Heathrow putting a cap on the number of passengers that would let go through the airport every day. In Amsterdam, basically people saying, we're stopping selling tickets. I mean, whoever got in the business to stop selling tickets? Um, and this went on in Austria and many other countries. Uh, and in the United States, of course, every plane full, similar problems with long lines, delays, cancellations. Uh, and we, we haven't even dealt with hotels and, and cruise lines yet. Uh, do you see an end here, a light at the end of the tunnel? I do, Peter. And I I am a born optimist, but I think what happened is you had this massive pent-up demand. You had had a combination of factors where a lot of people had left the sector um, and then suddenly business came back very, very quickly. Now, there have been some criticisms levelled at some airports for not having staffed up sufficiently in time. But I always say about an airport, it's either on or off. And uh, it's... uh, Well, you would know you come from an airline. Exactly, exactly. So... There were a lot of people who had left the sector during the time because, as you know, the industry was one of the hardest hit. We lost 50% of our value and a lot of younger people felt, well, I'll go and work for another industry. It was completely understandable. And they did not come back. And they did not come back. But having said that, while labour shortages are still a big issue in our sector, for example, I'm in New York And here, one in seven jobs are not filled in the hotel sector. So there are real, real challenges, but it is getting better. You know, it's interesting because as you look at every segment of the travel industry, and you'd be the first one to tell everybody this because it's what WTTC does, uh, always astounding people who don't know any better that it really is the largest industry in the world. It's one out of every 10 jobs. Before the pandemic, it was one out of every five new jobs. So, I mean, we're talking staggering GDP figures here. You could look at a global average of maybe 105 to 11% of GDP, which is substantial in and of itself. But in certain countries, that GDP figure of travel is 60 or 70%. I mean, where are those numbers right now? 
Yeah, well, it's really interesting because this is what we try and explain to governments, that travel and tourism, as you quite rightly said, Peter, is one of the biggest sectors in the world. Um, And yeah, it had a real battering during the pandemic. But we've just done a forecast at the WTTC with Oxford Economics that looks forward to the next 10 years. And the forecast shows that while global GDP, global wealth is going to grow about average 2% a year, And in our sector, it's going to grow about 5% travel and tourism. So if I was in government shoes now, I would say this is a growth business. In fact, if I wanted to buy equities now, (laughs) I would be buying equities in our sector. Uh, So there's a lot of growth there. Um, And why is that? That's because people were not able to travel. Business travel is coming back. Bleasure is, you know, that strange strange blend of uh, people that are doing business while they're while they're on holiday is here to stay it's a completely new business uh, business model and it's here to stay so there's a the business is coming back so what are we going to see so globally at the end of 2022 we'll probably get back to globally at about 80 percent of where we were pre-pandemic in 2019 and i think globally we should be back to 2019 levels by 2023 next year and you'll say well that's strange because all the hotels are full and all the planes are full but the trouble is china's closed and china is the biggest market and when they open and when they open when you know the the the, when that sort of sleeping giant awakes it's really really going to take off a little word of warning though to the u.s currently the u.s is the largest travel and tourism economy in the world we predict in the next 10 years that china will take over that position you know you mentioned hotels being full i want to put that in some perspective a lot of hotels are full at 60 percent because they don't have the staff to handle the other 40% of the inventory that they have. So it's a little bit of a different way of looking at those numbers, that the hotels are only operating at 60% occupancy. The other 40% of the rooms are empty because they can't staff those, right? So the real question is, when business travel does resume, what happens then? Yeah, and I really think governments need to look at their immigration policies I know that this can be quite a political issue to talk about. You you think? Yeah, I think exactly. But the truth of the matter is, if the UK, for example, that left Europe, so now that they don't have European workers, they're going to need other people to be able to do their jobs. And in the US, it is the same story. So I think we need to look at more benign immigration rules so that we can see that proper growth in our sector. You know, you mentioned governments and immigration rules. I'm going to talk about governments talking to themselves internally. My experience has been that the Minister of Tourism does not talk to the Minister of Transportation, or the Minister of Tourism doesn't talk to the Minister of Finance or Economics. And as a result, they're operating in different silos, so that when you land in a country like Portugal, there are 17 passport and immigration stations, of which only two are manned, and you have 8,000 people coming in at the same time waiting now two and three hours just to enter the country. And when you mention it to the Minister of Tourism, the Minister of Tourism is, oh, that's not me. That's another minister. But that's the first impression you're giving to your arriving travelers. And by the way, they have the exact same impression when they leave. They're standing in line for three hours to get out. I'm amazed that somebody hasn't figured out the economic impact of common sense of staffing those stations, because let's think about this. 
if they staff the stations and people process into the country three hours faster, they're going to spend more money. Exactly, Peter. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think it's shameful that we see customs and border force stations empty and people queuing. Now, interestingly, one of the problems there has been getting airside security clearance when you're hiring new people. This has been going really slow. In the United States as well. Yeah. And it's going really too slow. So it means, you know, I know somebody, I know a friend who was actually going to get a job as a, a member of border staff in the UK. They took so long to get their clearance through. Actually, the young lad has gone and got a job somewhere else. So that story is being replicated again and again. So we do need governments to become more efficient at what they do. And I agree with you more. Oh, that's up. asking a lot. It's asking a lot. <laughs> and what you said earlier about them not being joined up. I mean, it has been forever thus. It's not an excuse. But, you know, it was a chaotic response globally to the pandemic. I understand and I will forgive governments for having panicked. They've got a pandemic on their hands. The health of their of their citizens has to come top priority. I get that. But now we've been through it once. If they create such a mess again, <laughs> if we have another pandemic, it will be unforgivable. We need digital systems for moving through passports in a seamless way we've all got our covid vaccinations now on our mobile phone there's no reason why we shouldn't have our visa details our security details well, it's about biometrics yeah, too it's biometrics you know we have a company in the united states called clear they have they have pioneered the use of biometrics for security checkpoints in addition to what the tsa is doing and you no longer have once you have clear you don't have to show a piece of paper not even a boarding pass, not even an ID, nothing. It reads your eyes. It already knows your reservation. And the next thing you know, you're clear all the way through. And do they let you through, Peter? They do. <laughs> well, in my case, they're looking for me. But no, but they do. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and they're now applying this to sporting events mm-hmm. and rock concerts, other venues. And it makes it so much easier because it doesn't compromise security. Yeah, I think, you know, sometimes there are labor laws and rules and regulations as well that are trying to protect jobs and automation can sometimes threaten those jobs. And this is a a kind of social process that we need to go through. Well, the Minister of Tourism for Portugal said those exact words to me. She said, well, the reason why we can't man these stations, it's the unions. I said, what's the problem? Well, they're claiming we need to pay them more money. I said, pay them more money. It's not how much it costs, it's how much it's worth. If you have all inspection stations manned, everybody's not only happy to come, they're happy to return. It's like, it's such a no-brainer to me. And yet, the ministers are talking to each other. We know, you know, you have certain pilot, certain airlines that lost 30% of their workforce during the pandemic. Most of it actually encouraged by the airlines. They were giving people early retirements. They were encouraging them to do buyout packages. You know, you can't just hire a pilot new and expect them to kick the tires or her to kick the tires and sit in the left seat and fly the plane. There's a learning curve. It's maybe it's anywhere up to two years. So where are we this year? Where are we next year? Where do we come back to where we were? Yeah, not only does it take a long time to train pilots, also there's a, something called recency. So if a pilot's actually been sitting at home for recurrent a while training. They do and she's training. got to do her recurrent training so that when you, you're sitting behind her and she's flying you across the Atlantic, um, you know, she's really up to speed with all the, the latest. So that was an issue as well, I think, for coming back afterwards. But actually things are looking better now. There are 
many airlines that chose to keep their pilots on and they were there were different furlough opportunities and other airlines that felt that they couldn't and just a little bit of a defense a word in defense of the airlines you know they were facing financial ruin i mean it's the worst thing that has ever hit the airlines ever I mean, you know, we had the terrible tragedy of 9-11. That doesn't even scratch the surface financially compared to what they was doing. So just to survive, they were having to, very reluctantly, but they were having to lay people off. But as you say, when you try and restart that airline, it doesn't doesn't start, you know, it doesn't go naught to 60 that quickly. An example of what happened to me the other day, I was flying from New York to Zurich, and I took my own advice. I got to the airport three hours early because... You know what a crazy summer we've had. So the very first question I always ask when I get to the airport is, is the aircraft assigned to my flight on the ground? Is it here? And they said, you're in luck. It's an 8.30 flight tonight, but your plane's been on the ground since 2 o'clock this afternoon. I said, wow, did I look out? We're going to go. Well, we're waiting, and we're waiting, and all of a sudden, the airline, in this case Delta, announces a gate change for this airplane. So now we go to another gate. They announce a second gate change. We go to the second gate. And I keep on saying, is the plane on the ground? Oh, yeah, it's here. Okay, and then the third gate change, and then still no plane. I finally said, okay, tell me what's really happening here. Is the plane on the ground? Yes. Has it been serviced? Yes. Has it been fueled? Yes. Has it been cleaned? Yes. Did you perform the security checks? Yes. Why isn't it here? The answer was they didn't have the staff to pull it from the hangar to the gate. So everything falls apart because they lost people too. Yeah, absolutely. Airports, we call them sort of under the wing or airside yeah. colleagues, people that they were the people that were handling the baggage, doing the pushbacks for the aircraft. That demographic was particularly hit during COVID. One, because of the age profile of that group. A lot of were older and then they just decided to retire. A lot because if they were younger, they went and sought jobs elsewhere. Often those jobs are recruited quite locally around airports airports because they're not always the very highest paid job so you can't be commuting in from two hours away so it was that and and the mix of not being able to get airside security passes so it was a potent mixture that meant that there was nobody peter to push back your your aircraft i'm going to say this exactly the way you just said it a potent mixture (laughs) very good (laughs) the plane has been delayed because of a potent mixture i love that i'm going to use it I just did. So where do we go from here? You're based in London. Heathrow is one of the culprits. It was one of the, it was, that was ground zero for total craziness, right? On every level, right? The number of people, the processing, the baggage, on-time performance. At one point, British Airways canceled 10,000 and 20,000 flights off its schedule, and that triage didn't even change the problem. Yeah, I mean, British Airways continues to be a great airline, but they were right to do that because they could see in the schedules ahead, they would either have to be cancelling on the day, and that way they took a certain number of scheduled flights out in the future. They could reaccommodate customers on other flights in good time. So, so they, while were the headline, they were they preemptive. preemptive. So the headline sounded shocking, but in terms of impact on the customer, it was actually the most sensible and reasonable way to do it. And I just flew with Bush Airways the other day and they were fantastic. Triple, you know, triple seven, 300 ER, beautiful plane. And used to work for who? I used to work for IAG and British Airways. Just checking here. Just, just checking, checking. <laughs> exactly. But I don't anymore. <laughs> 
Was the plane on time? The plane was absolutely on time. Yeah, it was really good coming into New York, into JFK. Obviously, wow. the taxi ride from JFK into oh, the centre of town forget was it. a whole other story. That's uh, a different piece of infrastructure issues, but yeah. Yeah, those infrastructure but, uh, issues No, continue. I phoned on Turk. Turkish Airlines were fantastic recently. Um, I've been on Qatar. That's a brilliant airline. So I think the airlines are definitely, you know, catching up now. Well, they have. They can't get worse. Honestly, they, they have to get better. Oh, okay. Julia Simpson, the president and CEO of the World Travel and Tourism Council. Before I let you go, give me one thing in your travel experience that you hated the most this summer that you want to see fixed. What I hated the most was when governments kept putting countries on different red lists. So one minute you thought you could fly to Portugal or you thought you could fly to Mexico or you thought you could fly to South Africa and suddenly you couldn't go and there didn't seem to be any rhyme or reason. But the worst thing was when the wonderful scientists in South Africa discovered Omicron. They gave that gift of scientific knowledge to the world and how did the world repay them? They put them on a list that you weren't allowed to fly there anymore. And the truth is, as the World Health Organization told us, that virus does not re- it doesn't stop at border control and show its passport. It doesn't respect frontiers. And it was a big mistake, and we are paying very heavily for that big mistake. My thanks to Julia. Gary Left, the founder of ViewFromTheWing.com, always has the latest on who's behaving well, and who's behaving badly as part of the travel experience. And this week, there's no exception. Gary takes aim at overcrowded members-only airport lounges. And in most cases, it's not a pretty picture. So Gary, not to sound elitist, but if you're gonna, look, it's the old Groucho Marx line, right? I would never join a club that would have me as a member. But this goes beyond that. I joined a club that can't won't even let me in uh, because <laughs> because. So, what's going on out there? Yeah. So there's a few things that are happening. First is that you know travel is back. Leisure travel is certainly back, and leisure travelers get to the airport earlier than business travelers did. We've had vagaries of you know long waits at airport security, oftentimes, but it's you know not always as bad as you expected and planned for, and so you get to the airport early too. So you've got all these passengers at the airport spending more time at the airport. Many of them have taken up lounge access. Um, you know, they're, it, it's made available not just through the membership, but also premium credit cards that get you access to the lounge. And Delta in particular doesn't just have its own premium credit card that gives you lounge access, but they offer the access to uh, passengers flying Delta that have American Express Platinum and uh, Centurion Black Cards. And so in a place like New York, JFK Terminal 4, you've got a lot of uh, those card members as well uh, queuing up. Now, passengers, Delta does a good job, actually. You know, you joke about peanuts, but their, their food in their lounges is a cut above what I find in, you know, the average United and American lounge. I put out a buffet with decent food and passengers who are coming to the airport early, and they're going to line up and they're going to stay in those lounges for, you know, more than you think they will. 
uh, I don't quite see the point in lining up for it. And I don't really, and if you're um, feeding passengers along the way, that, there's sort of an interesting thing there. You know, they're not checking your credentials until you get to the front of the line. So if you want to, if you want those carrots, just get in the line. Um, and, and it's a, and it may be a way to get fed for free in the airport. Um, but it really is a problem because, you know, the, the line, the lounges have become popular. And I, I really started to see this before the airline lounges with American Express's Centurion lounges because they started doing the you know, really nice buffets earlier on. Now, they've, I've even seen in my senses they've cut costs in the food. I haven't seen you know, beef in their lounges in quite a while. Um, but, you know, better food, better drink. Passengers come earlier and they stay longer. Uh, and it uses it to sell the, uh, the, the membership or the card. And, you know, and it becomes difficult to get in. And then they go looking for more space. And they try to build bigger lounges. But even that turns out not to be quite enough. Uh, the good news is that any space just about in an airport will work because passengers will travel for the lounge, the space that you know, might be used for retail, use it for retail, right? The passengers aren't going to go out of their way looking for the retail, but the lounge, you know, any nook and cranny in the airport seems to, you know, seems to work. Right, but, but Delta know, does have that bigger problem than United and American with their lounges. They do, unfortunately. What was no topic A about two years ago was over tourism. Well, topic A at the airports these days is they've sold too many or given away too many memberships in the lounge. They, they they're they're excess capacity right now, and it's unfair to everybody. You know, Delta used to. Um, uh, say you know, they were justifying that they were charging more for their lounges because it was going to be this better and more exclusive experience. But it turns out that um, that it's not because if you go into a lounge and it's just as packed as the terminal, you're not really getting the experience that you you know have come to expect. And people seem to go anyway because they think, well, you know, it must be better, or I paid for this, or I should somehow try to get you know get it. Um, to me, the single best, you know, most important thing in a lounge from the airline in the U.S. is help during irregular operations. Right, you you know, to go to the agents who are in the club who may go to greater efforts. Those lines may be shorter, but if you can't get into the club. You know, then that you know that takes that off the table entirely. Then there's the other thing, and that is, how about if I don't go to the lounge for any food at all, but I go there to do some ticketing or 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 getting advanced seat assignments or figuring out Plan B if the first flight is too late and I can't make my connecting flight. They can help you there, but you first got to get in. And it's- yeah, and, it, and and on Friday I heard from some of my readers who reported that um, they the staff who normally would be there to help with ticketing weren't there in the JFK Terminal Four Lounge for Delta, and so they had to leave the lounge in order to go find someone to help them with their reservation. Um, and they thought, well, gosh, now you're going to have to wait again in the line to get back in. Well, they 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 know this is such a problem that they've built a system where they give you uh, tickets, line skipping passes in order to come back in, but you've got to know to ask for them that may not be volunteered. So you've got to leave the lounge to get the help that you're supposed to get in the lounge. You need to ask for a ticket so you don't have to wait in the line a second time. All right. So I'm on the, I'm on the threshold of an old line from the treasure, the Sierra Madre movie. I don't need your stinking lounges. <laughs> no, but okay. you know, it's not, it's not everywhere, you know, and I, I love the staff in my home airport at the American airlines club are absolutely fantastic they do incredible things whenever my flights are delayed or canceled they get me back moving again they're you know very friendly even when that lounge becomes crowded it's not a line to get in and so you know i still do you know value that help as a frequent traveler and by the way i just visited the american airlines lounge in miami and they could not have been nicer 
And uh, I have to say, the, they've, they've upgraded the food. And I wasn't even there to eat, but I did because they had actually stuff I liked. Yeah. I mean, you know, go figure, right? But the bottom line is, <laughs> if you take a look at what airlines used to sell the memberships for, when I joined, it was $25 a year. Then it went up to $400 a year. Now it's, it's more than that. At one point, they were even selling lifetime memberships, which I bought. My lifetime membership that I bought, I bought in 1974 for $400. And I'll tell you the funniest story. I used my card the other day to go into a Delta lounge, and they told me my membership had expired. And I said, well, excuse me, guys, but one of two things is possible here. Either you're out of business or I'm dead. Because it says lifetime on the card. And they said, no, the system says it expired. I said, well, you look at the card, it's lifetime. And they wouldn't let me in. So I sent the card back to Delta with a photograph of the card saying, can you please explain this? And they were very embarrassed. They said, oh, we'll take care of that. I'm not making this up, Gary. I'm telling you the truth. They sent me a new card that said lifetime, and it expires December 31st. <laughs> what do they know that you don't know? <laughs> I know. God help us all. Well, listen, I hope it gets better because what we're seeing now, whether it's Capital One or Chase or American Express, they're all opening lounges now at major international gateway airports, and that may relieve some of the stress and the pressure of, of membership everywhere else. But again, what are they doing within 15 minutes of opening these lounges? Restricting access in terms of how much time you're allowed to spend in the lounge. And That 15 minutes is crucial. After the, when a lounge opens and people don't really know about it yet, if you're one of those early adopters, um, that's when the best experience is going to happen. So Capital One so far only has one lounge. It's at Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. And, you know, they don't have that many people that have access from that many cards. And many people don't even know about it yet who do have access. And so it's a really nice experience. The food is good. The drinks are good. The space is good. Um, I think that now is the time to hit that lounge before uh, the whole rest <laughs> yeah. of the world figures it out. Yeah, before guys like me stand in line. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> My thanks to Gary. And to round out our conversations, it's time to eat. Or perhaps not to eat when you're traveling. Larry Olmsted, author of Real Food, Fake Food, takes his work on the road and explains why most of you don't know what you're eating and perhaps what you can do about it. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Your words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Hello, Larry. Hey, pleasure to be here. All right, so the California roll is not the California roll? 
Uh, you know, sushi is a particularly slippery slope when it comes to authenticity. Uh, a lot of sushi places uh, in the U.S., you really don't know what you're getting when you order. You order tuna. It's not tuna. Um, a lot of the fish is what I would call fake, and a lot of the products are mislabeled. How do you get around that? When you know, you're traveling in a, in a new town, and you go... Oh, okay, I'll go to that place. I mean, what do you know? I mean, one of the things I talk about in my book is particular things to avoid that are more commonly substituted, but also, you know, to know what to look for. There are things, uh, you know, a shrimp looks like a shrimp. It's very hard to fake. A piece of white <laughs> fish can be any white fish right. and often is. Uh, also, just the quality well, that's of Chilean the- sea bass. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, there's one where, you know, it was renamed. It was Patagonian Toothfish. Didn't sell very well, so they made up a sexy new name for it. It took off. And and that's another confusing thing for people is a lot of fish have two or three or five different names depending where you are. All right. So basically, you're telling me I got a problem. Uh, It depends where you eat. Okay, so how do you make those choices? Yeah, well, I mean, um, you know, uh, higher prices don't always equate quality, but, you know, there are quality places. If you go to a, you know, a well-regarded, well-sourced sushi place like a Nobu restaurant or something, you're probably going to get better than if you go to the strip mall. Although I've had some unbelievable strip mall meals. Yeah, absolutely. If you know where you're going and you know who's running it. And especially, I mean, you know, uh, when I was growing up in Queens, we used to go to the the Japanese neighborhoods to get sushi. And now you get sushi at the 7-Eleven or the same place where you get Chinese food and Korean food and every other Pacific Rim cuisine. And that's not really a good sign because it's something the people making it should be specialists in and take pride in. All right, let's go beyond sushi now because we're traveling all over the world, right? Your book's about that. And yet it's coming at the very same moment as everybody's emphasizing culinary tourism. Absolutely. And, and I'm a big fan of culinary tourism. I mean, people travel for a lot of different reasons. Go to museums, go to the beach, climb mountains, whatever it is. But the one thing they have in common is they all eat. And more and more they seek out special meals. But I'm a big fan of eating local specialties. And pretty much everywhere you go in the world, they have local specialties. So I love sushi, but I don't have it in Italy. And I love Italian food. I don't have it in Japan. Although, can I... Can I beg to differ with you about one thing? Sure. The best Italian food I ever had was in Lucerne. The best Chinese food I ever had was in Amman, Jordan. We're living in the global village right now. The best Indian food, of course, was in London, right? So... Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, if you go to London, I mean, London is known for its Indian food. Yeah. Uh, I did not know Amman was known for its Chinese food. It's I have not, to get but there. they've got an amazing <laughs> kick-ass restaurant in Amman. Uh, Chinese, yeah. Yeah, see, I need to get out more. Let me tell you what, what, what my metric is and tell me if you think it makes any sense. If I want to know where to go to eat, I don't necessarily go to the hotel general manager. I don't necessarily go to the hotel concierge. I go to the maids and the bellmen because they live in the communities, right? I said, where do you like to eat in your neighborhood? Not on the strip in Las Vegas or not on Madison Avenue. Where do you like to, that's why you went to Queens in New York, right? Where do you like to, to eat where you live? And they take me to those places or they tell me to go. I've never been disappointed. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And again, especially if you're eating local food because they know the local food. Uh, I, I try to avoid ever asking the concierge at a fancy restaurant, not because they, I mean a fancy hotel, not because they mean uh, to do anything poorly to you, but they're afraid to send you to someplace edgy or, um, you know, a, a, you see, a dive. But, you know, immersing yourself in the local culture almost by definition means edgy. Absolutely. And that's why, it, you know, like the concierge at a, at a five-star hotel typically won't send you to someplace like that because they're afraid if you don't like it, it'll come back on them. I was sent by, by a maid one day to a restaurant outside of Jupiter, Florida in a strip mall. Uh, and I got there. The line 
was was out the door and there were all the other locals there. I said, I got to stay in line. I got to do this. And you know what? Uh, and they print the menu every day by hand, by hand, right? And they make copies by hand, <laughs> right? And not a bad dish on the menu, right? But you'd never know it. Yeah, I mean, a, a, I think it was a cab driver recommended a dim sum place to me in Honolulu, and I went there, and they seemed surprised when I came in. They said, foreigners don't usually come here, and I took that as a compliment, even though I'm not a foreigner in Hawaii. Well, of course. How many Americans <laughs> think you need a passport to get there? Well, let's not go there. But I get the point, right? Where was the place? Do you remember? Was it in Honolulu? Uh, it was in Honolulu. It was near that uh, royal, the big shopping mall. The, um, oh, the, oh, the stadium. Yeah, but not in it. But yeah. in that neighborhood. Exactly. And yeah, I mean, um, it, if, it depends. Uh, I think sometimes, you know, locals don't know the best fine dining restaurants. But if you're, you know, you wanting to eat local food, they know that pretty much anywhere in the world. Cab drivers, maids, like you said, any service staff. So is there a city that you know, that you love, that you've never been disappointed in, in the food? Uh, Tokyo. Probably. I love Japanese food, but Japanese food is so much more than sushi. And sushi has become so common here. You know, in Japan, the norm is for every restaurant to specialize in a cuisine. So if it's a, a teppanyaki place, that's what they do. If it's a ramen place, that's what they do. They don't have Japanese restaurants the way we do. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I love tonkatsu, which is a breaded cutlet, can be pork, can be chicken, you know, sort of the schnitzel of, of Japan. And they have places that, you know, okay, only I'm, make give tonkatsu. Me an idea. I'm going to open a restaurant called Schnitzel of Japan. <laughs> I think I'd you probably, should. I'd probably do well. Absolutely. Just with the German community. You know, I, I think about these, there's, there's certain foods that show up in pretty much every culture and they just have different names and have some sort of a breaded cutlet is one of them. But, you know, going back to the whole idea of a global village, I mean, right now, in any city in America, right, you can usually find, I'm not saying it's going to be great, but you can find any kind of ethnic foreign cuisine you want. Absolutely. Right? I mean... Ethiopian food in Wyoming, you probably could find it now. Yeah, and for me, I mean, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't eat a food that's not indigenous to the place at all. For me, how much I travel, my wife and I, we love to relive our travel through meals. So we'll say, hey, you remember 10 years ago we took that trip to Turkey? It was great. Let's go have Turkish food. And especially in a city like New York or L.A. or Chicago, you can find pretty much every kind of food and you can go back. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to sound very elitist here, so I apologize up front. But... I actually keep a list of restaurants around the world and, at least to me, their signature dish. And I make it a point every two years, sometime within that two-year period, of going back to those 20 restaurants. Where, whenever I happen to be there, I, make a, I, I don't care what my schedule is, I'll go back there for that one dish. Does that make any sense? That totally makes sense to me. I mean, there's... Um there's a, a restaurant in Milan called Risotto 23 that every day makes 23 different styles of risotto and the menu changes. And I did a lot of research to find this place. And when I, I actually asked the concierge at the uh, Four Seasons to make me a reservation there. And he said, you're the first person who's ever asked to go to this place. You know, tourists don't know it. And that's the kind of everyone who goes to Milan who asked me for a recommendation. I tell them to go there. They would never find it on their own. And I would go back there every time. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, listen, I have a restaurant in Porto. I have a restaurant in Paris. I have a restaurant in Lisbon. I have a restaurant. You know, I, I, I've been keeping this for years and it never disappoints. I can't believe I'm not asking you for recommendations more <laughs> next time. I'll give you some. Yeah. There you go. But what's the one thing you got to look out for, though? Um, I, I, the, the thing that surprised me most when I wrote Other my book... Other than recommendations from me. Uh, yeah. is, is, is not 
any particular category of food. It's the fact that restaurants in general are largely unregulated. Uh, most countries that have food laws, like the U.S., the USDA, the FDA, whoever regulates a particular food, they regulate the production, marketing. They don't regulate restaurants. Restaurants in general are pretty much free to lie on their menu and very rarely even have legal consequences. So I always look, if, if, if a restaurant has a lot of superlatives, uh, uh, free range, you know, wild caught, anything like that, that doesn't it's not a seafood specialist i immediately am suspect cuz you can you know dry age you can throw all these terms on the menu and get people to pay more and it's been demonstrated people will pay more and often it's not the case they'll pay more because of the storytelling in the menu absolutely when you open a menu assuming it's a menu that opens up right left to right where do your eyes go do you know to the right to the upper right yeah and that's and so what do you where do you think what do you think that the chef puts their most expensive item cold seafood tower yeah upper right yep. but wait a second the reason why they put it there this i didn't le- learn this until recently is they know you're not going to buy that but the one they want you to buy is the one they put right below it because you see the expense of the seafood tower you know i can't do that oh i'll do that so the one they want is their most profitable item that they want you to buy the most of is the one right under the most expensive item on the right side okay then, and you and I were just talking about this in the last segment, how do they describe the dish, right? Instead of saying strip steak, they'll say Aunt Josephine's, you know, a, they'll give it a personality or they'll talk about its history or they'll, now, now some chefs, and I, I, by the way, I applaud this, let you know where it's from, right? Right. They'll tell you it came from which farm or which seafood procurer or which location in the world and how it was flown in. I think that's very important information, right? Especially when I know how, the, how it was sourced and whether it was done responsibly. Absolutely. And that's, that's one of the tips I give in my book. I say, if it says wild caught, well, that doesn't mean anything, but if, or farm raised, but if it says it's from XYZ farm, then it's usually accurate because sooner or later that farm is going to find out that they're on the menu if they're not providing that restaurant and they're going to sue them. So that's a, a really good indicator that you're actually getting what you think you are. But let me go back to the words wild caught. Why is that not the truth? It can be. But there's no there's no legal body enforcing wild caught on menus. Excuse me, I'm a wild caught <laughs> investigator, and I'm here with my hook, line, and sinker. I mean, but you're right. Absolutely, right? and and you know that's I mean, seafood is probably the most um, confusing topic for consumers. But I'm a big fan of wild caught seafood, and you know, seafood can be farm raised well, but most of it is not. So I try to avoid it categorically. And of course, let's be honest. Farm raised is less expensive. So if you're on an airplane, and assuming they're even serving food, and you have a choice of either fish or chicken, and if the fish is salmon, it's farm raised. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of people don't realize this because even a lot of fancy restaurants brag about, you know, uh, Scottish salmon or Nova Scotia salmon or Maine salmon. Atlantic salmon is commercially extinct. Anytime you see salmon from Iceland, Scotland, the UK, uh, anywhere in the coast of the Northeast, it's farmed by definition. The only wild-caught salmon comes from Alaska. Without a doubt. And the Pacific Northwest. Even Faroe Islands? Uh, yes. Wow. You can catch wild salmon in Scotland, but it can't be sold. So you can go there, fish, catch it at a, at a and, and take it, it to a, and yeah. cook it yourself, right. Interesting. Wow. Did not know that. And at the same time, it's the menu language. I want to talk about that. Uh, what, how do they, they pick the type fonts and the style, whether it's capital or, or, or not capital letters, or, or lowercase, and how do they actually price an item, right? And what I found, and tell me if you think this is going off ledge, is that in mid-price to lower-price restaurants, they use the number nine everywhere, right? 
it's always something dot ninety five mm-hmm. or dot ninety nine. So you think you're getting a, a deal, right? Yeah, absolutely. You don't go to a fine, uh, you know, five star fine dining restaurant and see the nine anywhere. Uh, and if you do see the nine, it's spelled out. It's ninety, n i n e t y, not in cents, mm-hmm. in dollars, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, you need to be aware of that. Yeah, and another thing is, I mean, and I understand there are, you know, they sometimes the menus aren't reprinted that often, and there are things like lobster and seafood that are volatile in market price, so it'll well, say, then you see market it'll price. say market price, but do you ever know anyone who ever asks, you know, how much is the lobster today, right? People either order it or they don't, and I think a lot of times they're almost embarrassed to ask. Although sometimes, you know, it, it, it's the style of the restaurant and the, the rules that they give their servers, they'll come to, we have a wonderful, um, you know, fillet tonight at... You know, $82.92. Yeah. They actually give you the price at the table. And I think that's good when they do that or for the specials. But one thing the servers do that I hate is if you ask, you know, what's your favorite or what's the specialty? And they say, oh, well, I really like this. That's a good sign. When they say everything is good, you that's know, like you're, poison. Oh, you're, you're, run for the door. <laughs> run for the door. Um, have you seen, uh, we talked about where they put the price, the items that they want you to buy. What about the losers? You know where they put those? Where? Lower left-hand corner on the back page. That's the chicken fingers for the kids. That's the mac and cheese. That's the grilled cheese. And, and I have to say, I, I must be a loser because I go to that page first because sometimes all I really want is a grilled cheese. It's hard to beat a really good grilled cheese sandwich. Actually, if it's really good, you're right. But I, I'm very particular. I want it on rye bread. I want it with grilled onions, right? And go for it. And, they, and when they do that, I'm, I'm ready for a nap. <laughs> I'm done, right? But the thing is, if you're looking to eat on a budget, go to the back page immediately. And what, you, what you're talking about with this menu psychology also applies a lot to the wine list. Uh, most, a lot of restaurants, they'll have, you know, 30 white wines. One of them will be by far the cheapest. Then there's sort of a jump and then there's a jump to the rest of them. And nobody wants to be the one who orders that cheapest wine. So the people who want the cheapest wine order the second cheapest wine, which they... It's the same thing at the, at the yeah. upper right-hand corner. See, there you yeah. go. But I think, Larry, you're letting us know that we have permission to order the cheapest wine. Absolutely. And, you know, they, they shouldn't have a wine that's not... They don't think is worth drinking on the list. They're choosing 30 wines out of tens of See, thousands. that's the point. It's okay to, to choose the least expensive because it wouldn't have been on the list anyway if they didn't like it. My thanks to Larry, to Gary Leff, and to Julia Simpson. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, and you know there's more of it every day, just log on to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you 
It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus, starting May 1st.